Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website, um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, in which we wrestle with a mystery from history and try not to get throttled by its serpentine coils. Uh, today I'm sharing a conversation with Simon Atkinson about Kundalini. What exactly does this mean? Is there really a snake in the spine that we need to awaken with yogic techniques? Or is it something to be a little more wary about? Um, well, I should first just clarify that we're not going to be talking about turbaned white people doing deep breathing and banging a gong, which is what the world of modern yoga often calls kundalini. Um, instead, we're going to be exploring Simon's research on one of the most influential teachers of the 20th century, um, along with some of his own experiences as a practitioner. Now, you can find out more about the podcast and uh, related writing at ancientfutures.substack.com. But for now, let's dive into the conversation. So, hello, welcome. Uh, I am Daniel Simpson and I am joined by Simon Atkinson, who is the author of a fascinating book that we're going to be using really as a springboard for discussion today. I've got a copy of it lying around here somewhere. Yeah, Krishnamacharya on Kundalini. Um, so, uh, couple of uh, you know, kind of resonant names there in the title of the book and I thought it would be helpful. I'm sure you know, most people listening will have an idea about you know, both of those two K words. Um, but if we could maybe begin with a very brief summary of you know, who is Krishna, Krishnamacharya and why do modern yoga practitioners care about him? Okay, who is Krishnamacharya? Well, I guess he's the man who many people would say doesn't really need much of an introduction. Uh, he's often called the father of modern yoga. So he was born in Karnataka in southern India in something like 1898. He lived for about 100 years and died in, in 1989 uh, in Madras. So he taught for the first part of his teaching career in Mysore, where he taught for the, the local king. Uh, and he's very famously taught some very prominent yoga teachers there, including BKS Iyengar and Batabi Joyce, who you know, really popularized his yoga from the early part of his life. Uh, just after Indian independence, he was forced to move away from Mysore uh, with the political changes, and he moved to Chennai, 
and taught for several decades before he died in about 1989. So from that part of his teaching career, uh, the main students that he had were TKV Desikachar, his son, Srivashyam, also his son, uh, A.G. Mohan was a long-term student, and also Srivatsa Ramaswamy was a long-term student. So in my book, uh, I only really quote from T.K. Vides Kachar, A.G. Mohan, and Srivatsa Ramaswamy and some of their students. I haven't been taught by Srivatsham. I haven't been taught by B.K.S. Iyengar or Tabi Joyce. So you're mainly focusing then on people you've either personally studied with or whose teachings you've been strongly influenced by. Is, is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess we could go down a rabbit hole and discuss what is a tradition. Because, uh, I mean, traditionally, there's a sort of lineage or there's a sort of family tree where one teacher can lead into other various branches. But mm. I would say really in the latter part of his teaching career, it's perhaps a little bit more like a matrix because people who study predominantly with one of those three teachers might also have studied with another one or another two or some of their students. So it's a little bit more sort of intertwined than perhaps in some traditions. So yeah, I'm focusing on the people who I've been taught by and I guess the, their students and people who've been taught by them. So I see that as being quite a sort of broad tradition uh, but interconnected. And then the other part of the title, uh, the sort of uh, yeah, even, even more difficult perhaps to, to, to pin down than exactly who was Krishnamacharya, given that he taught so many influential people. What exactly is Kundalini? Okay, well, Kundalini is a very difficult concept to nail because it's gone through quite a lot of what they call semantic shift. It's come to mean different things to different teachers, different writers, different texts in different eras. So we, we have a sort of standard description of what Kundalini is, allegedly, and that's that it's a coiled energy that lies at the bottom of the spine. And through various yogic practices, it can be made to release itself, rise up the spine towards the top of the head and lead to samadhi or state or maybe lead, lead you towards heaven if you're dying. So that's become the more sort of standard model. And there are six plus one chakras along the Shashumna Nadi uh, that leads from where Kundalini starts to where Kundalini finishes at the top of the head. However, and this is, this is what my book is all about, Krishnamacharya had a completely different conception of what Kundalini is. To him, Kundalini was a blockage to the Sashumna. So far, that's the same as in the more common model. But to Krishnamacharya, it's not Kundalini that rises to the top of the head, it is prana. Kundalini is just a blockage that initially prevents prana from entering the Sashumna Nagi, or channel, we call it, conduit. So that's interesting you say that actually in, in the more conventional view of things, uh, Kundalini is still effectively a blockage. How does that work? Uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not really quite sure. I mean, I guess with, with any of these descriptions, they have their enigmatic elements to them. Uh, you know, how can, how can an energy block itself from going into the Shashumna? I guess that's not something that I've really particularly looked into because I've been, I've been predominantly focusing upon Krishnamacharya's conception. 
but that that is a bit of a strange element well, it does get described, I think, in the, the Hatha Pradipika, probably the best known uh, physical yeah. yoga text. Um, yeah, exactly. As, as you say, in a way, there is this energetic potential um, and it bursts sort of through all blockages. Um, so it's in itself, you know, both in the way of free flow of prana in the central channel. Um, and it's said to clear um, the, uh, what say, the cleared path becomes the royal road for prana once the Kundalini yeah. is awakened. So it has this sort yeah. of dual effect. It's sort of in the way and yet at the same time clears everything else out of the way. <laughs> so. But it clears the royal road for prana, not for itself. But mm. in the Hatha Pradipika, there's actually inconsistent statements about Kundalini. So right. I think in one of the verses I quote, then Kundalini rises forcefully and it ascends to some extent. So where does it go? Where does it finish? Uh, so actually, I'll give a quote from Krishnamacharya where he's asked, you know, what happens to Kundalini after the highest of yoga is reached? And he says, well, we don't know. The, the Shastras aren't really clear about this. It's a very good point of his, I think. There's so many contradictions yeah, yeah, in these yoga yeah. texts, especially one like this. It's sort yeah. of stitched together from 20 or so other previous texts. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I discussed that. Yeah. So, and yet at the same time, as you, as you really sort of zero in on, um, although Krishnamacharya does sort of acknowledge that ambiguity, he, he seemed to be very clear in his own view that, <laughs> that there was a, there was actually an answer. I mean, taking this this book, the, the Natamuni's Yoga Rahasya, supposedly revealed to him in a trance. <laughs> his his, you know, his position on many things is a bit difficult to pin down sometimes. But you go to the back and there's a glossary. And as you say, Kundalini is the impurity that blocks the flow of prana. So it's, that's, that's the way it's defined. Um, and it seems to have promoted that view quite strongly. Um, is there any ambiguity left in, in, in the tradition that's descended from him? Um, or has it, you know, as you were sort of talking about in your book, become almost like a, you know, an inflexible view that there is this one way of seeing it? Well, well, I, I guess it depends where you look. I guess it depends who you ask. So I think if you look at the writings of Srivatsarama Swami, then Srivatsarama Swami's background is as, is as a smarta. So in that tradition, then the emphasis is more upon Advaita Vedanta rather than Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, which is more associated with Krishnamacharya's background. Uh, and he really gives different options about how we can conceptualize Kundalini. We can conceptualize it like Krishnamacharya does as being a blockage that prevents prana from rising. Uh, and we can conceptualize it as representing a vidya or illusion, or we can represent it as an energy that rises. So Ramaswamy says, okay, well, take your pick. Which one, whichever one makes sense to you, 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 you can go with that. So he's really not very dogmatic at all. He's very open-minded. Uh, and I think that that really that reflects his background, but it's also not so far away from Krishnamacharya's position, really, because according to A.G. Mohan, then Krishnamacharya used to teach different versions of what, of what Kundalini is in different traditions. So he taught his version in which Kundalini is just a blockage. And he said that in other traditions, particularly Shakta traditions, so traditions worshipping Shakti, the goddess, then Kundalini becomes a representation of the goddess, which has to rise to reunite with Shiva at the top of the head. 
So, so he he didn't deny these different these different views of Kundalini, uh, and he just favoured one of them, which is which I guess fits in more with his tradition. I, I guess it. We have to really sympathize, we have to empathize with Krishnamacharya's position because he was a staunch Vaishnava, Vishnu worshipper. And the way that the goddess works in that tradition, to cut a long story short, isn't the same as the way that the goddess works in Shaiva tradition or Shakta tradition. Yet, he was faced with so many Hatha Yoga texts which came from a Shaiva or, in some cases, Shakta background. And as you've already mentioned, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika is a bit of a mixture of these different texts from different quotations from different texts put together. So Krishnamacharya had to find a way of really squaring the circle. He didn't want to completely reject texts like Shiva Samhita, Giranda Samhita, etc., which were from a Shaiva background. But he had to find some way of conceptualizing Kundalini that wasn't completely denying the validity of the Hatha Yoga tradition, of all the techniques and the, the imagery that is used. So I describe in one chapter of my book about how his conception actually didn't come from his Sri Vaishnava background, contrary to what has been written. There were some claims made in a translation of the Yoga Yajnavakya that were attributed to Vedanta Deshika, who lived in the 13th, 14th century. And I show that those seem to almost certainly be false. So, so Krishnamacharya didn't base his conception <coughs> upon Sri, Vaishnava, Sri Vaishnavism proper. Instead, he turned to the arguments, so the, the Vaishnava traditions that actually influenced Sri Vaishnava tradition, so this and is going, those, rewinding the clock back to the tantric days that also gave birth yeah. to, you know, the same ideas that gave a different flavour in, in, in Shaiva texts. Yeah, so in these arguments of Pancharatra and Vaikanasa, mm -hmm. then the certain texts in those traditions, I mean, I've only looked at really a part of these traditions, these are vast traditions in their own right. And I hope that somebody more qualified than I am will actually take this forward and do a more systematic view across the whole of Pancharatra and Vaikansa. But if we look at Pancharatra and Vaikansa, then Pancharatra unapologetically incorporated tantric elements into its Vaishnava tradition. But because of the differences in perceptions of the goddess, then it wasn't really possible to adopt a Shaiva position. So they redefined Kundalini as a blockage. So I trace the evolution of the idea of Kundalini as a blockage through various texts, starting with the Padma Samhita or the Vimarnarchana Kalpa Samhita in Vaikanasa. So and the Padma Samhita leads to a quotation that appears in the Vishishta Samhita, and then that later appears in the Yogi Yajnavalkya, which is always quoted as Krishnamacharya's main text on this subject. So yeah, we can trace his ideas back through these texts to something like maybe ninth century texts for the Padmasambhita, and then in the Vaikanasa side, there's very similar ideas in, in the text I quote from that, again saying that Kundalini is a blockage. 
So let's let's point out something else though about that textual uh, strand that you've just identified there. Um, mm -hmm. As you note in passing in the book, um, this same sort of uh, stream of transmission is also what gave us the first descriptions in yoga texts of non-seated postures. Um, so the thing that everybody practices yeah. today, postural yoga, <laughs> dates itself back to the same source of the idea that Kundalini is a blockage that needs to be obliterated. And I wonder if, if you saw anything noteworthy about that, that sort of uh, strange coincidence. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.